thank you for being a part of our church service today. It is our desire at Riverstone Church that God's Word will work in you to produce an abundant field life. To know more about the ministry or to support, visit riverstonechurch.net. May the Lord bless you today as you listen to this message. If you will, I'd invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 8. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, and I'm grateful for the privilege of being able to present God's Word to you this morning. We're continuing on with our study, our walk through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, and if you don't mind, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Acts chapter 8, we'll begin with verse 1, and we'll read through verse 4. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Heavenly Father, we commit now your word into your hands, asking God that you will anoint it by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it will go forth with authority, with truth. Lord, that you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to understand what you're saying to us. And, Lord, that you'll give us a will to act upon it so that we not just be hearers of your word, but we be doers of your word. Lord, I pray that you'll keep me out of the way this morning. Give me a sensitivity to the leading of your spirit to say what needs to be said and nothing more. And, Lord, please hide me behind the cross so that at the end of the day, what has been seen is the goodness and the beauty of God and not any man. Lord, may you be glorified as your word goes forth and as the results continue to follow us in the days ahead. And we pray this in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. 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 You may be seated. As we've seen, just a little recap, because it's been a few weeks since we were in Acts. The Lord was doing an incredible work in his church. He had told his followers to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which was to come. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, in one mind, of one accord, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them as the prophet Joel had foretold. The pilgrims who were in Jerusalem for the feast and the celebration of Pentecost began to wonder what was happening. These were men and women who had returned from all of the countries surrounding Jerusalem, surrounding Israel, and the scripture says that they heard the word of the Lord preached in their own native languages, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, travelers who had come from Mesopotamia and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Visitors who were in Jerusalem from Phrygia and Pamphylia, from Egypt and Libya, as well as from Cyrene and Rome. There were Cretans there. There were Arabs there, both native-born Jews as well as converts to Judaism. And Peter preached 
as, as they were struggling to understand what is this, what's going on, how can these unlearned people know so many different languages, Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, begin to explain what you're hearing. These mighty works of God that you're hearing about in your own language are, are the works that have been confirmed by the recent events as our Messiah went to the cross to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And scripture tells us that as the gospel was preached, that about 3,000 souls were added to the church that day, saved and baptized. And the work continued. The gospel was preached. Signs and wonders followed the preaching of the word. And every day, scripture says, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. But then something happened. Persecution began. The pressure was on as the apostles were arrested by the Jewish officials and brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a high Jewish court. It was made up of 71 men led by the acting high priests, and it exerted religious authority as well as some political power. And its members had great influence in society, and they were willing to do absolutely anything to preserve their political power, to protect it. The first arrest resulted in a warning. The second arrest resulted in beatings. And then Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin, the trial that led eventually to his death. And this time, there was something different. This time, it wasn't just the religious officials. This time, it wasn't just those with political power who were bringing the persecution. But according to Acts chapter 6, verse 12, they had the backing of the general population. And scripture says that Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. For about the first 20 years or so of my ministry, I worked with a missions agency leading a department there called Comforting the Persecuted Church. And during those days, there was not a week that went by where I didn't get another report of persecution. Another story through email, another news flash through some of the networks I was a part of, testimony from some of the men and women who came to visit us. And more than once, particularly when I was overseas, I've wrestled with the question of why. Why, why does God allow these things to happen? I remember one instance sitting next to a, a Christian sister in Pakistan whose face was just absolutely ruined as a result of an acid attack. And I wonder why. How could God let this happen? Why would God let something like this happen? I remember another time in India, I was traveling with a pastor whose own parents had tried to poison him when he came home and shared about his conversion. I've, I've wrestled with the question. And as I've struggled through some of these issues, not just as a theological exercise while sitting behind a desk, but while spending time with the brethren in the field, many of whom have lost absolutely everything and given it up for the cause of Christ, I feel like the Lord has given me at least a little tiny bit of insight into understanding why he lets some things happen. 
And certainly as we look at the scripture today, I pray that he's going to bring these realities home to you as well. Because the truth is that God uses persecution. God uses pressure. The pressure on his church, on his people, to spread the truth of Christ, to bless the world, and ultimately to show forth his glory. And there's four verses here, and I want to try to draw something from each of these verses that I trust will encourage us today. First of all, in verse 1, persecution does come with a purpose. It's not random, it's not accidental, it's not caught God off guard. It is designed, allowed, permitted, orchestrated by God for a purpose. And scripture tells us that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. A persecution as defined by William Larkin is harassing somebody in order to persuade him to give up his religion or simply to attack somebody for religious reasons. And persecution encompasses a wide range of activities from ridicule to social ostracism to occasional beatings to confiscation of property to loss of job to imprisonment and ultimately to martyrdom to execution. And it can come from governmental sources It can come from family. It can come from society at large, from religious institutions, from every facet of society. Persecution can come, and it does come. Now, while there are often harbingers that that show persecution is on the way, more often than not, it just strikes suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere. But God always has a purpose in the things that happen in the lives of his people. And one of these purposes is seeing the fulfillment of God's word. You see, God's word never uses the phrase, if you are persecuted, or if you suffer. And you see, sometimes we we are so caught off guard, we wonder what's happening when scripture has already warned us to expect these things. We know life is not easy. And scripture does not hide the realities of what we go through. And it tells us not if you're persecuted, but when you're persecuted. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. Now consider the words of Jesus himself who said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, as he was speaking to his disciples, John chapter 15, he said, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus was so assured that these things were coming. In fact, Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 10 that as he was preparing to send his disciples out, he told them this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all of my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Warning, instruction, even blessing of what God has prepared for those who will stand strong on the foundation of his word in times of persecution, in times of pressure, in times of suffering. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, this is after this man Saul, who was ravaging against the church, has had his own conversion, God drawing him out of darkness and into light, he wrote these words. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. You see, persecution, pressure, suffering is the lot of the Christian believer as it is written. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, every instance of persecution, every attack on the church of Jesus Christ is simply fulfilling the purpose of demonstrating that God's word is true and it is being fulfilled. We love the fulfillment of the blessings. We love the fulfillment of the times of prosperity and the times where God's goodness is so obvious visible that we have no question at all. But scripture is also fulfilled in our suffering and in our times of difficulty. You see, God has a purpose in persecution. And it's not only the purpose of showing the truthfulness of his word, but even more specifically we see he uses pressure and tyranny to move his will forward. Now think about it. If you knew today was your last day, your final day, what would you say? The first few years I, I traveled overseas, my typical final words were, you know, make sure the kids feed the goldfish. Don't forget to take out the trash. Make sure you check the mail every day. In other words, reassigning my, my tasks to those in the household. But somewhere in the mid-90s, I made a trip to Columbia what was then uh, considered a pretty risky place for, for Americans to go. A number of Baptist missionaries had been martyred just a few weeks before. Uh, people suggested maybe we shouldn't go. We should reschedule the trip, but we felt compelled to go because the brethren there needed, they needed encouragement. And we needed to see for ourselves what was really happening on the ground. That was when I finally took the step of having a will made. And when I left for that trip, I didn't care whether the goldfish got fed or not. 
I didn't care whether the trash piled up and the mail was forgotten. The words I said to my wife and to my children were the things that were important. Not just the practical things, where's this paper, where's that, that insurance policy, but my heart for them, how much I love them, and, and things I wanted them to know and remember and carry with them. Now think about the last words of Jesus. He could have said anything, but what we have recorded is his heart. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, took somewhere around three years to prepare his disciples for one assignment, to make more disciples. And then he spoke his final words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew chapter 28, Mark 16 is another variation of this. Jesus said, go to the entire world. Luke chapter 24 tells that he said, repentance and the forgiveness of sins shall be preached to, the, to all nations. And then in Acts 1.8, those final recorded words before his ascension, he gave some very specifics. Witness the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you see, Acts 8.1 indicates that when persecution came to Jerusalem, the believers were still in Jerusalem. The mandate had not yet started. The obedience to what Christ said had not yet unfolded. So scripture says that they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. And a quick consideration of this verse may leave just a hint of discouragement. That these believers are now being persecuted, now they're being dispersed everywhere. What's the purpose? The purpose is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. You see, a closer look at this verse reveals the unfolding of God's plan. Persecution, in this instance, was a means to accomplishing God's purpose. His mandate made reality. And they scattered, and they went to Judea, Samaria. Some stayed in Jerusalem, and according to Acts chapter 11, ultimately they were in Phoenicia, they were in Cyprus, they were in Antioch, they were at the uttermost parts of the known and the traveled world. And as history has unfolded, to every people, nation, tribe, and tongue, that's a mandate that still is the mandate of the church, and it's being fulfilled. And God creates events and circumstances that cause us to walk in his will even when it's not comfortable, even when it's difficult. And there's a lesson for us. Let me just give something practical here. You see, sometimes the very things that should drive the work of the Lord forward, prosperity, affluence, safety, freedom, become the very things that hinder his will from becoming accomplished. Because prosperity turns into self-sufficiency. And affluence becomes self-centeredness. And safety becomes self-preservation and self-care. And freedom becomes self-expression and self-fulfillment. 
and God to see his work and his will accomplished will even use pressure and persecution to move his people to action. Persecution comes with a purpose. And verse 2 would show us that persecution also comes with some promise. It says that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And what we see here is the promise, the, the, the power of relationship. See, you're not alone, dear brother and sister. There are other faithful with you. Stephen was not the only devout, not the only righteous, not the only spirit-filled man in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 6 reminds us that the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples to a meeting in order to ordain seven men, specifically men filled of the Holy Spirit, to administer care to the widows. And some of these devout men who were in Jerusalem took great risk in their care for Stephen's burial. You see, Jewish law forbade funerals for condemned criminals. And as the events of Stephen's defense came to a head and he was stoned to death, though he might have been physically alone at that moment, he was not alone. Because there were devout people in Jerusalem willing to, to put their necks on the line just to honor and lament and care for the burial of Stephen. And you see, in moments of pressure and in our struggle with self-pity, it's all too easy to forget that we are not alone. Look around you. You're not alone. You're not alone. You see, this was the struggle of Elijah when he was pressured by Jezebel and his life was at risk. Here's what he cried out to God in 1 Kings 19. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I... Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. God, in his care for Elijah, and as part of his restoration, was quick to remind Elijah that he was not alone. In fact, there were at least 7,000 others who had not bowed their knees to the false god Baal. You're not alone. There's a body called the church our brothers and sisters that walk with us and walk through many of the same things we walk with. But even at the times where you're physically alone, even at the times where you may feel alone, you're never alone because we have the promise that God is with us. You see, not only are there others walking through the wilderness with you, but God himself, according to Psalm 73, holds you with his strong right hand. He's the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the one who said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Jesus Christ himself was called Emmanuel, God with us. And as he sent his disciples out to make disciples, he said, I am with you even to the very end of the age. And in that moment, remember, as Stephen's life was being taken... The promise of God in persecution came alive because Stephen looked to the heavens and he saw that he was not alone. God the Son, standing next to God the Father, was watching and waiting to welcome him home. 
we have a promise in our times of pressure that we are not alone, but we also have a promise of reward. Scriptures give names of people, and if you study the names, you understand that many times they have great meaning. Benjamin was originally named Benoni, the son of my suffering. His, his mother's birth, giving birth to him was traumatic. In fact, she died from it, and she named him Benoni, the son of my suffering. But his father, Israel, didn't like that at all. So he changed the name to Benjamin, the son of my strength, the son of my right hand. And there are many other examples. Have you ever thought about what the name Stephen means? Literally, it means a crown. A crown. The Greek words that Stephen's name is drawn from mean a crown. And it's interesting. I don't think it was just an accident that the man who was crowned with the name crown was the first person after the establishment of the church to receive the martyr's crown. You see, in the daily pressure, in the times of oppression, we forget that there is reward promised to those who overcome. First seven chapters of Revelation are filled with scriptures. To he who overcomes, he will inherit all things. I will be his God, he will be my son. And the list goes on. You see, Saul, who was later called Paul, was to learn what it meant to be persecuted himself. And he wrote these words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. James, who would also be martyred for his testimony of the risen Lord, wrote, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Take encouragement from the words of Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. You see, brothers and sisters, you're not alone in your moments of pressure. There's a promise of God's presence, the promise of believers who will walk with you, and the promise of a reward that is waiting for you. Persecution always has a purpose, and it always comes with a promise. And verse 3 shows us that persecution can even give us some perspective. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In this, we see the wonder of steadfastness. You see, the church will stand. The church will prevail because the church belongs to Christ. The very fact that he was in Jerusalem moving from house to house shows that there were still believers in Jerusalem still doing the work of the Lord, still preaching the gospel of Christ, still doing good to their neighbors, still trying to honor the king, and they were faithful, and it gave, Paul, gave Saul targets for his abuse. 
the church is described as the body of Christ in Colossians 1. Referred to as his bride in Revelation 19. The church is his priesthood, his people, according to 1 Peter chapter 2. The church is his household, his holy temple, and his dwelling place, according to Ephesians chapter 2. God is going to protect what is his. And the very fact that Saul was ravaging the church, and that picture is a picture of a wild beast just tearing up everything in sight. The fact that he was finding people to drag off to prison indicates that God's work hadn't ground to a halt. It was continuing, and it was continuing with steadfastness. Now Saul's attempts to destroy the church were harsh. Not only did he drag men and women to prison, Acts 22 says he beat them. He caused havoc throughout Jerusalem to all who called upon the name of the Lord, according to Acts chapter 9. He was complicit in the deaths of some of these people, Acts chapter 26. And he would later realize, worst of all, and this was probably his greatest shame, his greatest guilt, his greatest struggle, but for the grace of Christ, when he realized that Saul, or when he confessed that he had tried to make these believers blaspheme the name of the Lord. Acts chapter 26 verse 11. By his own admission, his raging fury followed them even to foreign cities. But the church did not stop. It did not fade away. It did not fold because the church is more than a physical building. It is a spiritual building standing upon Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, as the foundation. And in India, churches are still being burned to the ground. In China, they are still being bulldozed and dynamited. In Iran, they are locked and sealed. In Europe, they're being converted to pizza parlors and to discos and even to mosques. Yet the church still stands and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because the church is much more than just a building. The church is the people of God, purchased by God, proclaiming the purposes of God by the power of God for the glory of God. Yeah. And that's our mandate, no matter how bad the suffering gets. You see, we lose perspective when we only look at what's immediately in front of us. Step back from your circumstances this morning and see God's care for his church and his care for you. Step back and see what he's doing. Because not only is he doing a work of steadfastness, he's doing a work of salvation. On the day that Stephen was stoned to death, a young man named Saul was standing there holding the coats of the murderers, approving of what was going on. And Saul later called Paul as a dramatic example of perspective. A murderous persecutor who became one of the best friends and advocates that Christianity has ever had when he himself became a follower of Jesus Christ. I think it's significant that the Bible records his presence at the death of Stephen and then portrays him as the greatest antagonist of the early church. And I can't help but believe it was Stephen's martyrdom that was instrumental in Saul's conversion. Because at the time of his conversion, Jesus asked him, Why are you persecuting me, Saul? 
In his book, History of Christian Missions, Stephen Neal mentions persecution as one of the reasons for the rapid growth of the early church. I quote, Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. When persecution did break out, martyrdom could be attended by the utmost possible publicity. The Roman public was hard and cruel, but it was not altogether without compassion. And there is no doubt that the attitude of the martyrs, and particularly of the young women who suffered along with the men, made a deep impression. In the earlier records, what we find is calm, dignified, decorous behavior, cool courage in the face of torment, courtesy towards enemies, and a joyful acceptance of suffering is the way appointed by the Lord to lead to his heavenly kingdom. There are a number of well-authenticated cases of conversion of pagans in the very moment of witnessing the condemnation and death of Christians. And there must have been far more who received impressions that in the course of time would be turned into a living faith. Step back from your circumstances this morning and ask God to give you some perspective. Because in your moment of pressure, in your moment of suffering, God may be actually using you and your life and your testimony and your hardship for the great glory of bringing others to faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, persecution comes as a privilege. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I'm, I'm a living testimony to tell you there is a great privilege in proclamation. See, these weren't clergymen that were going out of Jerusalem being scattered. They weren't professional ministers. They weren't ordained, credentialed clerics or seminarians. These were ordinary Christians, followers of Christ. And they scattered. And that word is actually the word used for sowing seed. It's what the word means, scattered. And they did not go silent. They carried the gospel with them. And that was their message, the gospel, the good news. They went declaring what Christ had done for them. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. But the ordinary believer serving an extraordinary God went out. She went announcing the good news. He went telling the gospel what Jesus had done for him. Having left their homes behind, perhaps only carrying a few hastily bundled possessions, they went out telling the great things God had done for them. They went proclaiming salvation. The Life Application Bible says that persecution forced the believers out of their homes in Jerusalem, but with them went the gospel. Sometimes we have to become uncomfortable before we'll move. We may want, not want to experience it, but discomfort may be the best thing for us because God may be working through our pain. And when you're tempted to complain about uncomfortable or painful circumstances, stop and ask if God might be preparing you for a special task. What a privilege to be a spokesman for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a privilege, 2 Corinthians 5 would indicate, to be an ambassador of reconciliation 
with the message of reconciliation. Because the privilege of proclamation is the privilege of witnessing the power of transformation. John Stott wrote, What is plain is that the devil, who lurks behind all persecution of the church, overreached himself. His attack had the opposite effect to what he intended. Instead of smothering the gospel, persecution succeeded only in spreading it. Persecution should lead to proclamation, which brings reconciliation, which causes transformation. And I've been a witness to this, and many of you have as well. I remember, in particular, Brother Melchor. I met him in Peru quite a number of years ago now. In fact, Noel was there with me. Before he came to the Lord, Melchor was serving with a communist terror group in the mountains of Peru near the city of Cusco. This group was traveling from village to village. They would gather the people in the town square and then begin feeding them pro-communist propaganda. Often, in fact, the speaker would stand with a Bible in his hand as if he were preaching the word of God, but instead sharing his communist beliefs. On one occasion in one village, a villager who happened to be a Christian protested what was taking place. In fact, he publicly rebuked the communists and he began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. These insurrectionists, including Brother Melchor, who was a part of that number, took this Christian man. They dressed him in women's clothing. They painted his face and paraded him through the village with a signboard proclaiming, I am an imperialist pig. Though he was humiliated, the Christian brother struck to his witness, probably would have been killed, but there was a government intervention. Melchor and his companions had to flee to another village, and a number of the communists just began to kind of trickle away due to the threat of government action. For Melchor, he couldn't get away from, from that man, from the conviction that he saw in that man's life, the man he had persecuted. And soon thereafter, Brother Melchor gave his heart to Jesus Christ. I was in Peru 36 years after that. In a small Peruvian city, Noel and I were speaking at a pastor's conference, and Melchor was there. In fact, he was one of the organizers of the event. There was also a pastor there, a younger man named Alejandro. He was actually the son of the man who had been abused by Melchor and his companions. And Alejandro recognized Melchor. That day, I witnessed the power of transformation brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in forgiveness and reconciliation, but also in the understanding that persecution had led two men to surrender their lives to Jesus. One of them stood for Christ because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit over his own evil actions and the faithfulness of the man he was persecuting. The other made a stand for Jesus out of admiration for the faithfulness of his father. You see, friends, in our suffering, in our pressure, in our persecution, we need to live in this hope again and again 
fearsome events can become precious friends through the transforming work of the gospel. Fearsome enemies can become precious friends through the transforming work of the gospel. Adversaries can become our advocates. Critics can become our comrades. Friends, this is the purpose of persecution. It's ultimately to convince an unbelieving word, world that God's word is true and that it's worth living for, it's worth dying for, because what we profess is real and it's precious to the glory of God. So what does this mean today? Persecution may not have met us yet. So you may think, well, this is kind of irrelevant for, for me right now. But I invite you to substitute the word suffering or hardship or pain or pressure for the word persecution. Because if you're living life, you're living under pain or pressure or, 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 or suffering or trial or disappointment or heartache. Yes, there's good days. Thank God he shows us his kindness. But living is hard. You may not be walking with Christ this morning, but nevertheless, he brought you here for a purpose. You might have thought, well, I'm going to get out and go to church because I want to. Well, you're here because Christ wanted you here this morning. I'm convinced of that. Every fiber of my being. He brought you here to hear the good news, and this is it. Christ died to pay the penalty of my sin and your sins as a substitute to satisfy the wrath and the anger of God against all who have broken his law. If you've told a lie, you've broken his law. If you've had a lustful thought, you've broken his law. If you've ever used his name in vain, you've broken his law. If you've ever done anything to dishonor your parents, you've broken his law. We could go down the list, and every one of us, if not indeed in spirit and in thought, have broken all ten of the commandments. But Christ died to satisfy the anger and the righteous wrath of God by taking our sin upon himself and laying down his life to purchase our freedom. God brought you here this morning to hear that. And also to look around and to see many years of faithfulness. There, there are people in the congregation this morning who have been serving the Lord, in some cases 50, 60 years. Ask them, and they're going to tell you it's worth it. Look around, and you'll see the faithfulness of people in the midst of pressure and suffering. This morning, there are people here that have lost not just one loved one, but multiple loved ones in the last few weeks. There are people here who've gotten reports apart from God's intervention, are, are, are terrible from a human perspective, from their doctors, some from lawyers, some from bankers, people right here sitting among us, people who've suffered brokenness in marriage, people who've suffered disappointments with children, any heartache you can think of, it's probably represented here today. Look around. You may not know who that person is, because they're suffering well for the glory of Christ. And they're going to tell you it's worth it. The good news is really good news. 
You may be here serving Christ and, and like me sometimes, just trying to make sense of the suffering you're going through. But you're not alone. God is with you. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And you may be here this morning loving God, right now all is well, but you're prescient enough to see that persecution is on the horizon for our country. Persecution is on the horizon for the United States of America. Remember this sermon. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it because God is worth it. And maybe, may he be glorified. If you will, join me in prayer as the music team comes to, to lead us in another song. Heavenly Father, this time now is yours. The word has gone forth. I've tried to be faithful to your word. And I pray, Lord, that now it will take root in our heart. That it's something we'll chew on and meditate on and ponder and talk about in the days ahead. And Lord, I pray that the work you want to do in each of us through this word will be accomplished through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's one here this morning that has not surrendered to you, let today be their day of salvation. There's one here that's serving Christ and just the suffering has almost gotten to the point of being unbearable. I pray that your presence will be so real to them today that they'll know that the truth is they're not alone. Lord, help them to learn to lean on other believers. Lord, we need each other. We are to be our brother's keeper. But Lord, even when every other person in life fails us and walks away from us, there's one who will never leave us or forsake us, who sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, his ears tuned to the cries of the righteous, his eyes always on the faithful, and who holds our hand so much tighter than we've ever held his. Lord, let that be our hope and our reality today. And Lord, as we worry and concern and think about what's on the horizon, help it not to be a worry that brings fear. Help it not to be a worry that disheartens us, but help us to understand that you're about to do something in this nation where your church, in spite of the darkness, is going to shine brighter than ever and give us a will, give us a resolve to be a part of that in the name of Jesus. The altar's open this morning. If you'd like to come and spend some time with the Lord, I invite you to do so. I invite you to worship God this morning with our praise team because he is worthy of all glory, all honor, all power and praise. Thank you for being a part of Riverstone Church. I hope today's message encouraged you to take a step closer to Christ. If there is anything we can pray for or talk with you about, please visit our website at riverstonechurch.net. May the Lord bless you this week and may you walk in all of his promises and plans for your life.